Hello and welcome to What The Lux with me, Fred Moore. And me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, brand and experience design consultancy headquarters in London. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. And alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and experiences. Let me welcome to the podcast a true travel legend. A Brit, Sam landed in the United States over 10 years ago after his wife Kelsey's job relocation. Sam had a thirst for travel, but for him, and probably like many adventurous Europeans, the US was a black spot and not at all on his radar. What he discovered as he embarked on his new life in the US blew him away. The scale, sweep, diversity and beauty of the continent totally seduced him and led him to turn his passion into his career, and he founded All Roads North, an unpretentious luxury travel company that custom designs unforgettable American road trips. Sam is not only a pioneer of the luxury American road trip, but also a board member of the Sequoia Parks Conservancy and brilliantly placed to educate us on the changing nature of luxury travel, why people are now willing to spend really significant sums on custom road trips and give an insight into travel and the United States in general. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Fred. Thank you very much for having me. I don't think I've ever been called a legend before, so um, I'm flattered. No, perhaps you haven't, but uh, first time for everything. And is this your first podcast? This is officially my my first podcast, yeah. Uh, But not your first media appearance? No, I I was once uh, in the Daily Mail as uh, as an 11-year-old modelling cricket clothes. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, So Sam, tell us this morning, firstly, how are you um, and where are you speaking from? I'm very well. I'm enjoying sort of watching the UK uh, politics meltdown uh, as opposed to the normal US um, political meltdown for for once. Yeah, we should definitely say we are recording at a very historical moment as about 30 minutes ago, we had our latest prime minister resign. I think it's it's the third or fourth in the space of two months. It's, um, It's bonkers out there. Um, and uh, you're probably very pleased to be in Los Angeles, which is where you're speaking from, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it will all swing back to us fairly shortly, so um, I'm not being too smug at all. Yeah, I am at home um, in Venice Beach in Los Angeles, and most days of the year, I'm looking at blue skies and a palm tree out of my office window. We're very, very jealous as we enter winter in London and what's happening in Europe. Sam, you grew up in Yorkshire in the north of the UK. Uh, you've been an old friend of mine for very many years. Your father, I don't think, ever left Yorkshire. Where did this travel bug come from? Yeah, that's a good good question. Dad is not, not a big big traveller. That's definitely fair to say. I think his biannual trip down to London to to Ronnie Scott's that I think you've been um, sort of party to on a few occasions is about as um, distant as he he gets. And, you know, as as a child, we certainly were not traveling to sort of far-flung exotic destinations. So really a family trip to to France or up to Scotland or, um, you know, a a sort of long weekend in Filey was about as exotic as it got. But I think, I think like lots of people, it was really being lucky enough to take a a gap year between some school and university. And yeah, I I, still thank my parents for letting me head out the door with a backpack and travel around Asia uh, on my own for five months. Can't see myself necessarily doing that as a parent now but I thank them for it because it was uh, a yeah, pretty life-changing experience I, I cringe slightly looking back at some of the experiences and, and pickles that I got myself into but I remember it all uh, pretty well to this day and it made you the man you are today and gave you this thirst for travel before 
moving to the US, it'd be interesting for us to hear just just about one or two of your foundational travel experiences to give, give us an insight into them. Yeah, I mean, so I think every place you sort of take something uh, sort of different from. For me, the ones that really kind of stick with me are the ones that you end up doing on your own. And maybe when you're doing it, it's not sort of pure enjoyment. And, you know, I remember definitely times where you sort of wish you were, were back home, but you, they stick with you and you uh, again, get yourself into kind of situations and meet people that I think you maybe wouldn't do as a group. I had an amazing 10-day experience uh, sort of once on the Mentawi Islands. That's a, a sort of island off the coast of Sumatra that really only sort of opened up to sort of the rest of Indonesia in the 50s. So still, you know, the, the sort of local tribes uh, sort of li- living in longhouses and spent sort of 10 days moving between uh, sort of those different sort of settlements, which was pretty incredible experience. I uh, yeah, was lucky enough to go to, to Syria before the kind of troubles there, sort of destruction of Syria effectively. And that, that was a, a really surprisingly kind of rewarding and warm experience. So I have yeah, very kind of happy memories of, of that as well. Sam, tell us about All Roads North. Now, but before All Roads North, you were living in the UK. I think you worked for Tesco's, the sort of UK Walmart. You landed in the US and relocated there. How did you come to found the company? And was it an easy decision to jump into travel, start something new, take that risk? Yeah, and, and thanks for, for reminding me of the, the glory days at Tesco in, in Welling Garden City. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a number of things that sort of happened in the run up to that. As you mentioned, um, Kelsey and I lived in, in Argentina for two years, which was um yeah, my, my uh, sort of dream job, really. I was working for a company that ran fly fishing lodges throughout kind of South America and, and the Bahamas. So yeah. it, was, it didn't get much much better than that. And um, as you know, Buenos Aires is a, is a pretty fun city. And Kelsey, um, my wife, got offered a job in, in Boston. And, you know, I had all sorts of negative preconceptions um, about the US and, um, and moving there, all of them sort of based um, falsely on sort of American popular culture. But, but we ended up um, in, in Boston. And I initially spent um, a couple of years working for a great um, sort of company um, they're called Global Rescue. They were a um, sort of medical and security evacuation provider and spent a lot of time working with the, the travel industry, particularly the adventure travel side of things. And, you know, firstly, just realized what a, what a great industry it was, some really fantastic people that are part of it. And looked at really how the, the US was sort of being marketed as a, as a destination and having, you know, been proved so wrong myself and, and, and um, you know, really um, developed that passion for, for what the U.S. could be, saw that there was really a gap in the market to start talking about the U.S. and, and, and designing travel experiences in the same way that all of these great um, sort of higher end travel companies had been doing internationally and in all of these great countries in the world, wherever it might be. You could travel in this more meaningful, deeper way, but no one was really doing that in the US. So that was really the impetus to, to start All Roads North. Would you say, I think, you know, as us Europeans, there's a certain inverted snobbery culturally about America that stops us really looking into the place. We, we kind of think we know it because of Hollywood and, and American culture, music, etc. But But actually, we're completely ignorant of both the geography of it, how vast it is, but as you say, the kind of diversity in terms of people uh, and the regions. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there's like a willful ignorance given the sort of history that actually it was it was largely Brits and, and sort of other Europeans that you know thought they could do better across the Atlantic. And I think the people uh, perhaps sort of left in the mother country, it was, yeah, they were always the kind of young, 
boisterous uh, sort of upstart. And so I think there's always been that sort of level of, yes, snobbery, if, if you like. I think that, you know, American sort of popular culture and politics and the sort of image that's sort of projected internationally doesn't help them. I think the US is, is one of those rare countries where you can ask, you know, almost anybody in the world what they think of the US, whether they want to visit, where they want to go. And people will have an opinion. Whereas if you ask somebody about Malawi or wherever it might be, be in the world, th there's a lot less uh, that is sort of pumped around the world about those countries. And so they have a sort of flesh, fresh slate, if you like, to work with. So I think in, in that way, uh, it can kind of hinder the, the US that their popular culture is so pervasive internationally. So the US and I guess its hinterland was slowly revealed to you and you were disabused of these um, some of the notions or prejudices you might had about the place. And as it slowly revealed to you, you had this idea to offer these authentic luxury road trips. But to do that, of course, you have to have done these road trips. And, and you're probably one of the best traveled people in the US. T tell us about some of those experiences. I guess the starting point is that, that when I started All Roads North, I guess like a lot of people that, that start things, I thought I knew what I was doing and I thought I understood the sort of travel business. But, you know, subsequently um, over the years, I've realized that I really didn't. And Still, still, I'm learning how it how it all works. But you know, my my first inclination was like, right, I've I've got to sort of get out and and sort of if I'm gonna you know be doing this for other people, then I obviously need to you know go and visit every single spot that um, I'm going to be sending them, every property, every guide that we're we're working with. And so yeah, I, I set off in a, a a beaten up old Honda CRV and went on these sort of wide ranging road trips with um, quite often sort of no, no real sort of destination in mind. And, you know, one of the things that I love about North America, and I think we always try and sort of weave into the travel that we plan now, is sort of how much open space and um, particularly public land um, there is. There's a real kind of culture of, of the outdoors. And so I would set off with a, with a tent and I would really kind of camp wherever I ended up. Um, that day and had these really pretty fantastic experiences of either camping in these amazing spots or, you know, meeting other Americans on the road. And there's this kind of great culture in the U.S. of, of being on the road from, you know, Kerouac or, um, you know, the sort of initial kind of migrations west. And it still exists now. There's, yeah, there's a real sort of culture of, of, of just traveling and it's about the kind of places in between and where you stop rather than necessarily the the destination and so i would take my sort of one pair of you know vaguely smart um clothes and i sort of i remember one night camping on the shores of, of lake powell and then i dust myself off in the morning to go and visit sort of amangiri and you know sort of pretend that i i knew what i was doing and that had this um, sort of huge book of, of luxury clientele which of course at that point i didn't but i think it was those early trips that really have kind of stayed with me and it was that that sort of gave me the passion for, for this notion of, of luxury road trips, which is, is what we very much focus on now, that let you see the places in between. So it's not just moving from A to B. It's, yeah, the little small towns, the places, the people that you encounter in the US, I think, you know, make it an interesting uh, place to come and travel. Uh, Sam, so if you had to recommend just two road trips to a foreign visitor, perhaps um, a male approaching middle age from, from England... Uh, which ones would they be? And I, and I guess that's quite a hard one. I think for most of our clients and, and 
you know, they're, they're coming to us, I think, to do something a little different. And what we always like to try and do is sort of surprise them in, in some way. You know, some of the places that have really surprised me, um, you know, the southwest uh, of the U.S. So um, there's, a, there's a great kind of region that, that sort of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah and, and Colorado that sort of culturally is fascinating. So you have a lot of Native American tribes, the landscapes are um, just out of this world and places like New Mexico have just an incredibly surprising culture. So, um, you know, as, as much kind of um, Hispanic and, and Native American as it is white colonial settler. Um, so just very, very interesting. I think Montana for me is a place that I've always fallen in love with. Um, I've never, yeah, never driven a road in Montana and not just being absolutely gobsmacked at, at the natural beauty. So those are, are two places that immediately spring to mind. Uh, and are you a complete purist? Do you ever find yourself or your clients um, in some kind of dive in Vegas or Atlantic City? Oh, no. So I, I think dive is definitely something that I have a real um, a, a affection for. Um, uh, I'm not sure about uh, Atlantic City or Vegas. For me, Vegas is, yeah, it's great, great for a day. Um, I then have to have to run away to, to somewhere. And, and the great thing about Vegas, there's plenty of great places nearby to, to run away to. So just moving on to maybe more the, the kind of luxury aspect of what you do, which is something we touch on um, in these podcasts. But I, I note you put the word unpretentious next to the word luxury in your company description. Um, are you comfortable with the word luxury? That's a great question. We, I, I spent a lot of time when we were you know, creating the sort of positioning and branding for All Roads North, wrestling with, with this notion of luxury and, and, and what it means. I think in travel, it's it's often just used as a signifier for expensive. But I think it's interesting to, to think about what it actually means and, and what it doesn't mean for, for us at All Roads North. I think we're not about sort of big statement over the top travel, which um, I, I certainly see an element of. For us, it's, it's much more kind of understated. It's about um, I think the service and, and customized service that people get, which I think is something that we're going to come back to in travel. I think it's all been about the experience and, you know, a sort of total focus on, on that, sometimes to the um, detriment of actually good, old fashioned, fantastic customer service, which which I think is important to us. But, you know, luxury to me is, is you know, connecting people um, with these these places and, and and sort of connections on the ground that that give them an experience they couldn't find um, elsewhere. I'm, I'm interested in the the people who you know they are spending pr- pretty reasonable, pretty significant sums on experiences that are at, at times quite raw. I mean, I know you're probably staying in Amman's and lovely hotels as well, but um, at times quite raw experiences. Who are these people? You know, clearly they're not, as you say, the bling tourists. Um, they're, they're not the people who are doing some of these sort of insane adventure experiences, you know, helicopter to here, six continents in seven days, all that stuff. Who is your typical client? I, I would say there is there is no sort of typical client, but I, I would say that they they tend to be uh, reasonably well traveled, sort of internationally. So they they're coming to the U.S. with a sort of international perspective on lots of different sort of countries and cultures and want to understand uh, the U.S. Uh, in that context. And that applies to our, our U.S. clients as well. They've typically um, sort of traveled a lot um, outside of the U.S. So they have that kind of curiosity that, you know, they, they want to kind of dive a little deeper um, into a place. I think what 
we see a lot from um, again, as you say, kind of clients, um, you, you know, spending a lot of money on on a travel experience in North America. It's not all about um, you know luxury five star accommodation. Um, they definitely sort of want that, and it's important that you're staying in a great place. But we see a lot of people coming to us asking for a kind of diversity. So they they want to stay, um, you know at an Amman, but then they might spend the next two nights, you know, at a sort of custom camp that we've set up for them kind of out, you know, in a wilderness area. Springs to mind a place that we use a lot in Louisiana. It's a two bedroom bed and breakfast, but it's really about the people that are running it and their connections in the local community and sort of, you know, again, what you come away with. So, yeah, I think a a lot of luxury travelers, um, you know, it's not now just about the bells and whistles of a luxury hotel and we have a lot of people come to us and say, that's what I do for my, my business life. I, I don't want to do that um, on vacation, that they're, they're looking for something a little different. That's absolutely fascinating that uh, I find that really, really a good summary of the things we also see just more generally um, about how you know, luxury travel brands have to remain relevant. And it is around those sort of less stuffy, authentic um, experiences and people who are just wildly different from um, probably the traveler of 20, 30 years ago or perhaps the children of the people on the hippie trail, I don't know. Um, but w- I guess at Matter of Form, we spend a lot of our time looking at the different characteristics or traits of different nationalities and how they travel. It's a big part of what we do, and you know, a hotel here needs to appeal more to this market or that market. You're in a good place to tell us about the European traveller and some of their traits, or the, or the Australian or the global traveller in America, but also... Um, an insight into the American traveller. You know, do they leave America? What happens when they leave America? Um, how do people perceive them? Yeah, so 50% of our clients are, are from the US. And obviously, uh, sort of during COVID, that moved to effectively uh, 100%. So it's a kind of an interesting set. We're, we're, we're dealing with Americans traveling in America. So maybe slightly different from Americans traveling internationally. I think it's an interesting landscape in the travel industry, because historically, the US, they've had, I think, less access to a lot of um, what I would call the the very sort of tailor-made sort of travel companies that have been very prevalent and have probably grown up in Europe and particularly the the UK and have moved more recently to, to the US. So I think this idea of having this very crafted, experiential um, trip planned for you is is quite a new one in in North America and for U.S. clients, and I think they are yeah they're, they're sort of jumping at it in, in in a big way, and they they really appreciate it. I think the great thing about uh, sort of U.S. sort of travelers um, and and sort of U.S. I guess sort of luxury consumers in general is is they really appreciate and actually demand great service. And so if you're um, you know a small human powered company, which we very much are, you're you're in a pretty great place to, to leave a good impression, I think, with, with U.S. travelers. I've always been, you know, I, I love how kind of joyful U.S. travelers are. They're, they're, they, yeah, are, 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 I want to say easily wowed, but they, they just take a lot of pleasure in, in the trips that they take. And there's maybe um, sort of less of a cynical worldliness that um, some of our international travelers might have, which as a somebody planning travel when you get their feedback on these things that they've done and it's made such an impression it's very rewarding to do that they i think maybe more so than than uh, say uk or australian travel traveler have a real appreciation for great guides so we we tend to kind of weave more of those experiences in, into trips than we might do for 
um, uh, international travelers. So yeah, they're, they're, I think a great customer to, to work with um, and yeah, really appreciate that kind of high touch customized service. Uh, and what about the the other nations traveling within the US? Are there any characteristics there? I mean, quite often you hear, you know, the Scandinavians very elegant, the, uh, the Brits quite stingy, dare I say it? I've heard that before. Are there any of these sort of grand sweeping stereotypes that are true or is it actually case by case uh i think it's i think it's pretty varied but we do see some we do see some trends i think one of the interesting ones for us as a company that's planning road trips is, is always kind of how willing people are to drive and and the big distinction is always our uk clients versus our australian clients and um you know we'll have australian families with young kids who'll land in los angeles and pick up a car and you know drive four or five hours to their next destination, having just got off a, a long haul flight. Whereas, you know, you, you tell some of our British clients that they have a four hour drive and, and that's suddenly, you know, that's a, a big, big expedition. So that's kind of maybe a more obvious difference. I think there's differences in how independent some travelers are. I would say uh, sort of interestingly, kind of Italian, Spanish travelers, uh, certain German travelers tend to be you know, much more independent potentially and you know, like much more kind of um, space and, and sort of free time and itineraries to do things under their own steam and potentially you know, come to us having done a great deal of research. So um, I'm always amazed by how kind of well educated um, a lot of kind of European travelers are on these bizarre you know, rock formations in the Utah desert that they've, they've read about somewhere and want to go and want to go and see. So, yeah, there, there are some differences, but I think um, we, we definitely see all sorts. One thing on my mind, and it's on uh, a lot of the industry's mind, is, is technology and innovation continues its inexorable march, really. Do you worry that there'll be no place for the travel advisor or a, or a lesser place for the travel advisor uh, and maybe you've answered that by by what you've explained about uh, about these road trips and and putting them together but be interested to hear your take on that depending on also when you ask me that question is is whether i feel uh, sort of incredibly confident that you know there will always be a place particularly at the sort of luxury end of the market for kind of human connection and, and particularly sort of human curation and and i do believe that so i think what we do, you know, in terms of connecting our clients with 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 people on the ground that we know will be a sort of good fit for them. I cannot envisage, and, and who knows what will come around the corner, how that can be done, you know, by a, by a platform. Um, but I do think there's going to be a massive change in how even very kind of high end luxury travel is is delivered, purchased, the channels that people can access it through. I mean, I think one thing that's on my mind and, and you, you, you will have a sort of better insight into this is it feels like websites are going to be a thing of the past, you know, in the not too distant future and that we will be talking to our clients in, in some type of a, a virtual scenario. And instead of sending them a, you know, PDF itinerary will be, you know, sort of showing them where they might be going, um, you know, in a, in a much more, uh, yeah, sort of 3D way. So. Um, I think it's, there's going to be a lot of change and technology is going to definitely impact what we do. But I think at the end of the day, there is going to be a role and a, and a sort of successful business positioning for that, that sort of human high touch element. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're bang on, actually. In, in all aspects of travel, we definitely see 
technology is the supporting act, obviously, to the real world experience. And um, you're right, it's sort of in 10 years time, it's impossible for me not to think if that's not too many negatives in there, um, that you, Sam, you'll be taking clients on some sort of virtual 3D augmented reality experience of your different itineraries or the different options to give them a taster and a flavor but the point is you'll still be the one you know massaging helping them through that process and equally when it actually comes it comes to the travel experience you know it's there as a supporting act we've I've just actually yesterday had a chat to a potential client in California um, he's got some amazing sort of na- nature experience camp concept and they're, they're absolutely driving themselves mad over whether to have an on-site app because they think of course in one way it, it really helps the, the the experience of being there and makes your life simpler the second thing it takes you away from looking at the stars and the leaves and, and the sea and all of that and um, I think that's the right way to think about it. You've got to think of technology very, very carefully, and it's there as an aid. But travel doesn't exist without the real world. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about this before we spoke, and you know, this this sort of idea that I've heard people talking about. You know, is it gonna is it gonna replace the in some way the real experience? So you know, you could go and see Machu Picchu in the metaverse, and why would you then want to go and see Machu Picchu? And I just think that. You know, we've already, you know, television has proved that wrong. So, you know, color TV arrives and suddenly everybody can see all of these amazing places. You've got David Attenborough, you've got, you know, but that that didn't stop people wanting to go and see these places that actually, you know, drove the demand to go and see these places and incentivized people to want to go and explore the places that they'd seen on, on TV. So I don't see how um, necessarily seeing something in a more involved virtual world would would be different and i think there's always like everything there's going to be a premium even if that becomes a more mass experience i think would always be a a premium for the as depressing it is the the irl version of of travel but yeah i I don't think we'd ever get to that that point i'll tell you one one experience i would do in in augmented reality from from my city room is something like coachella i'd rather join you there virtually than have to sort of sit in a beer tent waiting forever for for a drink and I'd rather do that so, so it definitely has its place I'd rather do that from the comfort of my sitting room it's such a, a fair weather festival goer Fred I think you you want to uh, experience the dirt and the grime and the, and the sweat of a festival I think it's uh, yeah that's that's part and parcel of it but not for me anymore Sam just just drawing together the, the business side of things what, what are your fears and hopes for the uh, the wider travel market in 2022 we live in obviously extraordinary times from economic aspects from um, security um, fears which is always a big influence on the travel market obviously what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine yeah how are you feeling we interestingly here in the in the US maybe sort of experience things 12 months ahead of, of um, everybody else because we had this huge explosion in, in domestic travel um, really in certainly 2021 and, and and this year as well which I think um, you know undoubtedly there is this sort of regardless of what is happening in the economy, there is a huge uh, sort of pent up demand to travel. And I know that speaking to sort of colleagues um, in other sort of destinations of the world, that they're, they're certainly experiencing that. I think we saw that definitely come with its challenges um, in terms of, you know, capacity of suppliers on the ground. There were certainly sort of service issues that arose um, because of a very kind of tight labor market. And I'm sure that some of that's going to kind of play out 
in some of these destinations that are getting so much attention now. I mean, I've been just reading the travel press recently and every other articles about Japan, which is fantastic for Japan because they've had such a tough time of it recently, but I'm sure that that will come um, with some with some challenges. But I think kind of one of the great things about COVID is it's kind of built resilience, hopefully into the into the travel industry, because we're sadly uncertainly going to come, you know, we're coming into a difficult period. I think it looks like there's undoubtedly going to be a fairly major recession. And I think that's going to impact certain destinations more than others. And if I've learned sort of anything about travel, it's when it, when it's good, it's not going to last. And when it's tough, you know, some, some change is just around the corner. And I think hopefully um, sort of people have, have um, become better positioned to kind of weather, um, you know, those ups and downs um, after COVID. Also, when we talk about travel, it's, it's when we talk about luxury travel, it has different characteristics to, to mainstream travel, both from its imprint um, and perhaps somewhat more resilient in the face of um, some of the pressures we've talked about. So it's, it's not... It's not something we can talk about as one necessarily. Um, we've got to look at the different different areas within it. Sure, yeah. Sam, I'd love to know as well, um, it's not just All Roads North you're involved in. You've also become a board member of the Sequoia Parks Conservancy, which is a, an amazing achievement and congratulations. But how did this come about uh, and what is it you do there? Yeah, so Sequoia Parks Conservancy are the non-profit partner of um, Sequoia and, and Kings Canyon National Park, which for any listener who's not familiar with the, the geography is in the southern Sierra Nevada in, in California and is a pretty incredible national park. It goes from about a thousand feet in elevation all the way up to Mount Whitney, the yeah, highest point in, in the lower 48. So an incredibly diverse kind of landscape. But I've always sort of been traveling up there and I've spent a lot of time sort of in the foothills around those parks and it's a place that I've always loved and yeah there's, there's just something about um, that landscape that, that I find pretty pretty magical um, if you've never seen a, a sequoia the first time you kind of see one you wind up this sort of mountain road um, into the national park and, and then suddenly these these just uh, gargantuan trees um, um, kind of emerge um, but um, as I'm sure lots of um, you know, most people have sort of read about um, California over the last certainly five years have just had some terrible wildfires and uh, two in particular. So 2020 and 2021 um, were in the Sequoia and, and Kings Canyon um, uh, park area and, and, and some of the sort of surrounding kind of national forests. And they estimate that around 15 percent of all giant sequoias on the planet were killed in just those two years alone. And so that that really, you know, it's a it's a pretty kind of critical situation that is, you know, driven by long-term drought in California and and sort of climate change ultimately. And so the Sequoia Parks Conservancy has, you know, a number of different hats on, but ultimately, you know, they're sort of promoting the well-being of, of this environment. And um, you know, enabling people to go there and um, and, and learn about it and, and enjoy it. It's you know, from my standpoint, it's I'm still in in listen mode. So going from a strictly sort of for-profit organisation and having run um, a sort of company and a, and a startup effectively to go into a non-profit um, environment is um, is completely different, but but really exciting and, and and really rewarding. And I would say for for anybody, the the first thing you can do is just go and see these places. And I think once you experience them, then feel much more sort of invested and connected into into protecting them. 
you earn your living from travel. Travel is many things, I think mostly good. There's, there's definitely aspects of it, especially on the sustainability side, that are not so good uh, and are being addressed. But what, what does travel mean to you? What do you think its role, role is in society, if that's not too deep a question? I mean, I think travel is, it's, it's almost like, I sort of, thinking the other day is similar to the sort of debate about hunting in, in the US, but it's there is there is a primal urge, I think, within people to travel. There is there is a feeling that you get from sort of being on the move, going to a, a new place that you can't quite put your finger on. That there's something that just drives you to do that. So I think, you know, this is not a kind of when when we talk about travel in and sustainability and how it, you know, how it fits into the future of, of the planet, I, I think we shouldn't forget that there's something in us that, that drives us to travel. I think we're going to be talking about travel in a in a very different context, given what's happening on the planet. So I think travel and, and migration and, you know, it's going to there's going to be a different conversation about travel and people moving going forward. But I think travel at its best, you know, you connect to the place that, that you're going to. And I think it, it breeds empathy. So if you've been somewhere, you've met the people, you have an understanding of a different culture, you're going to have a connection and empathy to that place and, and it might change your smaller world view and and, and and make that a larger one which i think is is only a only a good thing more travel less wars type of thing i i think so i mean that's the you know maybe that's uh, uh looking at it through rose tinted glasses but yeah it, i certainly feel that i feel having particularly some of my sort of earlier travel experiences yeah you, you if you understand a place you you i think are more connected to it that's a really uh, positive and heartwarming message to to sort of wind things up. And and Sam, thank you very much. You're um, unbelievably erudite and interesting on this topic. Perhaps something you wouldn't pick up if you met met you in a bar um, after nine o'clock. But um, clearly, your passion and and your expertise shines through. So thank you. Now, Sam, we always ask our guests on the podcast the same four questions at the end. Uh, you've had these in advance, so I'm just going to far away. Um, firstly, what most irritates you about your industry? One of the things that I find frustrating about the travel industry is a sort of constant search for, for newness um, and the next best thing. And um, sort of every year there has to be sort of new destinations and, and new ways to see it. And I think that 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 doesn't necessarily serve um, you know the sort of longer term sustainability if you like of travel I think yeah I, I don't think we need to race to the next place every single time and, and um, slow down a little bit yeah so uh, there's a, probably a different take on travel innovation you're pointing to there which I really agree with the second question is um, what most concerns you about the world we're leaving the next generation I read a thing that came out from the World Wildlife Fund um, about a week or two weeks ago um, that said that 69% of the world's wildlife population has been lost since 1970, which just blew my mind that um, oh that that has happened in such a short period of time. And that sort of terrified me. There's a lot of things that are happening that you, you know, the timeframes are a little bit further out. But to look at that and think that in 50 years, um, we've lost 69% of the world's animal populations was was pretty jarring. It's shit scary that I, I luckily meet the generation coming up now or our children's generation and and I think, and I, I hope, they just will not stand for that. And uh, yeah, it's not a, it's a bit of an indictment, really, on, on the industrial age or post-war era. Um, Sam, if you had to give up your job tomorrow, what would you do? Well, assuming that I wouldn't be allowed quite yet to go off and be a, a fly fishing guide, I think sort of moving into that sort of, 
you know, environmental nonprofit area. Um, having had a you know small small taste of that with the Sequoia Parks Conservancy, it yeah, it's a it's a fascinating world, and yeah, something that I think at, at some point in my career I'd I'd love to become um, sort of more deeply involved with. Amazing. And then just to, to end on something more positive for you, Sam, what's the most exciting thing in the next five years? Well, Fred, that's a good question. Yeah, I have have two young boys who are seven and seven and five, and I think they're just getting into to that um, age where some pretty fun adventures are on the cards. And I was talking to somebody the other day here in California who said every year he takes his family on a, on a sort of river trip. So they go and raft um, you know, a section of the Yukon or the Colorado or all of these great, great rivers. And I think there's a whole host of other sort of outdoor adventures that look forward to, to dragging both my kids and potentially Kelsey, my wife on. That's what I'm excited about for the next five years. Uh, fabulous. Sam, listen, thank you so much uh, for giving up your time this morning for you, uh, this evening for me. And we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Fantastic. Thanks, Fred. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What the Lux. You can find us on socials at Matter of Form and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matterofform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time.